Last week, we looked at the first half of Daniel chapter 2, and uh, we made it through the dream and God uh, sending Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar. If you remember, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He was vexed with his dream. He stayed up late with his dream. He asked the wise men to interpret his dream. The wise men were unable to do so because they wanted Daniel to tell them the dream first, and then they could make up their own interpretation of it. And instead, Daniel, the, the king was unable to, one willing to do that. He wanted the wise men to show how their supernatural ability, supposedly, which they didn't have, of course. And so the king was going to put all the wise men to death. And Daniel stepped up and said that there is no way a human being can know the future, can know a dream like the king has. But there is a God in heaven who knows dreams. There is a God in heaven who knows the future. There is a God in heaven who knows the truth about the world. This is what Daniel means when he speaks about God in Daniel 2, verses 21. There is a God who changes times and seasons. And just admire the boldness it would take Daniel to say, verse 21 to Nebuchadnezzar's face, the God that Daniel worships, he removes kings and he sets up kings. Kings come and kings go, but God remains forever. That's the part we looked at last week. And then we got through verse 29 where Daniel repeated the dream to the king and told the king that I can interpret your dream. Daniel 2.29, to you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. This mystery, as for me, has been revealed to me, not because any wisdom I have any more than other living people, but in order that the interpretation could be made known to the king so that you may know the thoughts of your own mind. I mean, just think about the penetrating knowledge of God that God through his prophet can look at someone and say, I'm going to tell you the truth so that you know the thoughts of your own mind. <laughs> it's humbling. And the reality here is that God knows not just the future, but that God knows your thoughts better than you know your thoughts. The kind of sovereignty you see here in Daniel chapter 2, it is overarching. God is sovereign over the most powerful nation the world has ever seen here in Babylon, but it's also what theologians call meticulous. It's over the individuals involved. This is not grand scope sovereignty, grand scope foreknowledge where God just knows generally the trend of the world. This is meticulous individual sovereignty where God can look at one person and say, I know the thoughts of your mind better than you know the thoughts of your mind. You could say it this way. God is the God of the forest and the trees. God's the God of kings and slaves. He's the God of wise men and frauds. He's the God of all of them. Now what's unfolded in the rest of the dream that we'll look at tonight, I know some of you perhaps are expecting us to get to chapter, chapter three and the, uh, the fire and whatnot, but we're gonna be in chapter two tonight and look at this, this dream. What you're gonna see unfolded here is an absolute prophecy of future kingdoms. It describes the future kingdoms of the Mediterranean basin from the time of Nebuchadnezzar all the way into the time of the second coming of Jesus Christ. What's covered here is not just Nebuchadnezzar's rise and fall, because it follows here as well. It's not just Babylon's rise and fall, uh, which was contemporaneous with Daniel. De Babylon was already reigning over the world when Daniel was prophesying. It's going from that all the way to the next three empires that will rule, all the way to the empire that will be in charge of that Mediterranean basin when our Lord comes the first time all the way to the empire that will be in charge of that Mediterranean basin when our Lord comes the second time. Describing different kings that will be under the Antichrist reign. This covers the grand scope of history. Richard Dawkins, the well-known atheist, I listened to a debate of his at a, a college campus in Arkansas. And he said this in his debate, quote, the problem with Christianity, simply put, is the resurrection. The resurrection is so trivial, so petty, so local, so earthbound, so unworthy of the universe. And he was asked later what he meant by that. He describes this in a book that he wrote on atheism. 
He says basically his point is less eloquently referred to as anti-supernaturalism. The Dawkins argues for atheism based on the basic premise that to believe in Christianity or any religion really requires you to believe in a supernatural ability, a supernatural force. Obviously, Christianity is filled with miracles. The Bible is filled with miracles from the parting of the the Red Sea. I mean, you can go before that, the flooding of the earth, (laughs) all the animals in the ark. That's in the miracle category, the creation of the worlds. But You know, skeptics just dismiss those as saying creation and flood, those are just, you know, myths. Moses didn't really mean to convey them as truth. He just passed it on myths. But they have a harder problem with the Red Sea crossing because as you read the Exodus story, the Red Sea crossing is, there's no way to describe that as put in there as a myth. Like, you know, the Egyptians represent the Red Sea and they were dangerous, but God somehow saved them because... That would be a mythological interpretation, but that is actually what happened. And the somehow God saved them was through the ocean, (laughs) through the Red Sea. And so you have this whole school of atheists that starting with the parting of the Red Sea, working all the way through the rest of the Bible, tried to explain away the supernatural capacity of God to do miracles. This is where a whole story is about the Red Sea crossing actually was a comet that came and pulled the water back, kind of gibberish like that, all the way to the New Testament where Jesus didn't actually feed 25,000 people with the you know, fish and loaves. It was, you know, kind of an optical illusion. And, uh, you know, the, people come with just these crazy stories. But the hardest ones to deal with, of course, Dawkins says, you can, you can come up with excuses all you want with everything else. But the hardest ones to deal with, the virgin birth and the resurrection. The virgin birth is clearly not in the Bible as a metaphor. It's in the Bible as a declaration that God can violate the natural laws of the world to bring the Savior into the world. And then the resurrection, that he dies, he's in the grave, and he raises again. And, you know, skeptics say, oh, he's in the grave. He was just passed out. He was swooning. He, you know, he didn't resurrect. The disciples went to the wrong grave. All kinds of silliness. I always laugh at the disciples going to the wrong grave one. Google Maps, you know, but the angels showed up at the wrong grave too, so that's harder to deal with. Dawkins writes this, the 19th century is the last time in human history where it is possible to believe in miracles for an educated person without embarrassment. I know many Christians are too ashamed of the doctrines of the resurrection and the virgin birth to even talk about them in public. This reflects their knowledge that the idea of miracles is an embarrassment to any intellectually honest person. What I appreciate about reading somebody like Dawkins is he's straightforward and he captures exactly the issue. The atheist says there can be no such thing as supernatural activity. There can be no violation of the orders of the world. It cannot happen. And the Christian, our whole religion hinges on the resurrection. It hinges on the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And so, you have to ask yourself, you're holding your Bible in your hand, Old Testament on the left, New Testament on the right, is there dedicated proof, incontrivable proof, that God is capable of doing supernatural things. God, if he or she exists, is capable of doing supernatural things as described in the Bible and brought to bear in real life. Because if there is that kind of authentic, incontrivable proof, then that lays the foundation for you to believe in not just the virgin birth, but also the resurrection. In other words, if God has shown that he is the kind of being that can violate natural laws and do things that cannot be explained in any way apart from a supernatural intervention, then the resurrection and the virgin birth makes sense because we've established that God is a supernatural God. And this is the function of Daniel 2. Daniel 2, of course, is preparation building for later on in the book of Daniel, Daniel 7, the fantastic prophecy about the the 70 weeks, and Daniel 9, which describes the judgment of mankind, Daniel 11, which describes the battle with the Antichrist. There are so many different far-off future prophecies in Daniel, even in the chapters with Daniel in the lion's den and the people thrown into the fiery furnace, which will be chapter 3 next week, Lord willing. Even with those kind of prophecies, those kind of miracles, you have to ask yourself, how can I believe them? And so the book of Daniel is going to alternate here between these far-flung prophecies about God's meticulous knowledge of the future and of individual hearts 
And then with these particular ways, he demonstrates his supernatural power by providing for those who fear him, whether in a furnace or a lion's den or here underneath the king's sword. Let me give you an outline as we look at Daniel's dream tonight. We're just going to look at a king's dream of history's future. The king's dream of history's future. We read last time the the content of the dream, but let's look at it again. Verse 31, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, the chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. It struck the image on its feet and clay and broke them into pieces. The iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were broken into pieces, became like the shaft of the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found, but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. It's a simple enough description. A statue with four components, head, chest, and what's described here is is waist or loins, feet, the different parts going in decreasing value of metal, gold, silver, bronze, ultimately iron, down to clay at the, the feet. So you've got descending value, descending worth. It's noteworthy that the descending value of the materials kind of goes the opposite way that historians generally view the power of the empires of these prophesy. Rome obviously ruled longer than any of these other ones, and they're described as iron mixed with clay. The feet are somewhat distinct. We're going to have the ten toes here coming alive in a distinct fashion. We'll look more at that later. That's the content of the dream, all of it ultimately broken by the rock. In verse 36, we're going to unpack the dream. This was the dream, Daniel says. Now we'll tell the king his interpretation. You can picture the room full of wise men all leaning in. Nebuchadnezzar gobsmacked here that, that somebody actually did know his dream. But he's probably not even the most surprised person in the room. The wise men are probably the most surprised people in the room. (laughs) Reminds me of the Witch of Endor. You know, who told me this would actually work? (laughs) Verse 37, you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory. I mean, he's heaping praise upon this king. I don't think he's comparing the king to God, even though the language king of kings, it's a, it's a, Idiom, when you say king of kings, is like song of songs in the book of Song of Solomon. It just means the best of all the kings. Babylon had conquered so many kingdoms and Nebuchadnezzar was the king of all of those kings. He's exalted even above his father. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar was new on the throne. That's why the stream was vexing him so much and Daniel extols him. Into whose hand was given wherever they dwell, the children of man. And speaking of all the nations that, that Nebuchadnezzar has conquered the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. This is some political savvy here from Nebuchadnezzar. He's telling, I mean, from Daniel, he's exalting Nebuchadnezzar. I don't think he's just flattering him because this is true. Nebuchadnezzar at this point, remember, is ruling over the known world. Nobody had ever ruled to this extent before. Nebuchadnezzar is. And so when Daniel calls him the king of kings and said, you're ruling the birds of the, the air and the beasts of the field. I mean, this is all you. It's, we're kind of, we come from a democracy, so we're somewhat uncomfortable with this kind of language. <laughs> But understand, through most of the world and most of world history, this is fitting kind of language for a king. He is the sovereign. When the Bible refers to God as the sovereign, he's exalted over earthly kings, but there's that language at play that a human king is the sovereign. He can do whatever he wants to with the birds or the animals or the people. That's why he is a king and set apart. This is why God is, of course, the king of kings, the sovereign of sovereigns. Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. We're going to go through our statue here. Remember Voltron was, I think, five lions that came together and brought one. We've got five different kingdoms that we brought together in one epic statue. It makes me smile anyway. First king, head of gold. It speaks of Babylon. Clearly Babylon. Daniel identifies it at Babylon and says, you are this king. Now what stands out about this statue This begins a huge dramatic shift in the Bible. We're going to be all over the the Bible tonight. 
As time permits, we're going to look at several different verses. I'll read them so you don't have to flip there. But understand, there's a dramatic shift that happens here, right here in Daniel 2. So far throughout history, God had been working from the time of Moses until this moment, God had been working through the nation Israel. God had sent Jonah to Nineveh, somewhat reluctantly, Nahum to Nineveh around this time. That stuff was going on outside of Israel. But for the most part, God's word, God's will, God's plan, God's people were confined to Israel. He was letting the nations, Paul says this in Acts 17, he was letting the nations go their own way. He had appointed them lines. He had appointed for them uh, limits to their dominion so one nation could not rule the world. God had restrained them. The nations had conspired together at the Tower of Babel. They were brought down. They were scattered. God now rules over them. He separates Israel from them to make them a people of his own possession, sanctifies them, gives them his prophets, gives them his king, gives them his words. Israel rebels. Israel is now divorced. We read about that this morning. They've been sent away. Now what becomes the question? And this is the change. I mean, Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he didn't want to see God's plan get taken from Israel and given somewhere else. That's the the logic of Jonah here, you're seeing the same thing here with Daniel, except without the reluctance. Daniel doesn't have an option. You know, it took a whale to get get Jonah to Nineveh. It took captivity to get Daniel to the king's court. But here he is. In a sense, Daniel starts his life where Jonah ended his. Already there. Already seeing that God's will will be done in a foreign land. And what happens here in this dream This is a more overarching prophecy than had ever been given to any prophet in Israel. Jesus refers to this time, in Luke 20, he refers to this as the time of the Gentiles, that God is shifting here now his revelation from his people Israel to the Gentile world. Now God is going to be working through Gentile nations. There's still going to be other Israelite prophets. Haggai is going to come after this. Zechariah is going to come after this. There will be other Old Testament prophets. But this is rightly called the years of silence. The return is going to come after this where Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, that's all still in the future. But if you read Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, even Haggai, what stands out in those books is the emptiness of their pockets, spiritually speaking. Haggai makes it a literal point in Haggai chapter 1. The people don't have anything in their pockets. They are impoverished. Their temple is pathetic. They're crying at the temple. The point is that now God has taken his function away from Israel. He's working through the nations. Now, how's that going to turn out? Well, it's going to keep going forward. God's going to keep working through the nations. And the two combine, the two collide, really, in the New Testament. Because in the New Testament, Jesus comes, spends two years of his ministry with Israel, then goes to the other nations of the world, crucified when he returns. And as he's crucified, resurrects, the gospel comes into the world, the Holy Spirit comes into the world, Acts 2, people are speaking with all the languages of the world. The church is being built not through Israel. It starts in Israel. Even Jesus says, go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. It starts in Israel. The disciples are from Israel. (laughs) Not even Jerusalem, though, they're from Galilee. I mean, that's a poke in the eye right there to the Israelites. Galilee. It's like having a constitutional convention in the United States and making all the delegates from New Mexico. Who would do that? Galilee. And then the gospel leaves and goes to the world. That's all in the background here of God giving this epic vision of world history, not to Israel, but to Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, who Daniel just addressed as the king of kings and the sovereign of the world. The Old Covenant, of course, is still in effect with the Israelites, and they're still rejecting it, of course. We see that when we get to Nehemiah, Sanballat, and Tobiah. At the time of this dream, we mentioned this last week, at the time of this dream, Persia barely existed. Greece was a little more than war-torn provinces with barely any sense of ethnic or linguistic identity. There was no shared culture. Rome didn't exist. And Daniel charts this all out. Well, Babylon is the head of gold, Babylon is the one who exiled Israel. Assyria was a threat, of course, to Israel. But Babylon is the one that finally captured Jerusalem, tore it down, 
decimated. And this has been prophesied by Jeremiah. This has been prophesied by other Old Testament prophets. So Daniel's not the first one to say Babylon is going to rise up and do bad things to the Israelites. But Daniel is the first one to recognize this statue image, this overarching picture of world history. Nebuchadnezzar is at the top of it. That's why he's described as the head of gold. His reign is going to be short. A couple more decades after this, tops. We don't know exactly when this, this dream happened. We're assuming it's Daniel, maybe 19 or so, you assume his three-year period of training ended when he was 17, maybe a year or two after that, it would be this. Babylon's only going to rule for another decade, 15 years maybe, and they're going to fall, and it'll be the end of their reign. Yet they're the head of gold because they conquered Israel. They're the head of gold because they start off this time of the Gentiles. They're the head. Everybody else is going to follow their lead. So that's the first entrance to the statue here. Daniel begins and he exalts Nebuchadnezzar and like a, I think Nebuchadnezzar's mind turned on or turned off after this. He just felt flattered that he's the head of gold. Amen. There's more to the dream. I don't care. I'm gold. Verse 39, Daniel says, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. That kingdom we saw earlier back up in verse 32 is described as the kingdom of silver. We're going to see these same Four kingdoms later on in the book of Daniel, when you put it together, it's obviously Persia, the Persian kingdom. They'll be led eventually first by Artaxerxes and Xerxes, and Cyrus will be involved in this. The Persian kingdom will last longer than the Babylonian kingdom, but it also will eventually fall. It'll last 100 years or so, 150 years, it'll fall to the Greece empire, which we'll look at next. But Persia is certainly inferior from a human perspective. Babylon took their approach of integrating cultures. Babylon captured people, brought them in, taught them Chaldean, taught them how to write in cruciform, taught them how to think like a Babylonian, just reinvented the culture, moved people around, and made them all learn the same language and culture. This is why they're, in a sense, considered superior. Persia is going to be very different. When you get to the book of Esther, you have to have this in the back of your mind. The approach of the Persian Empire is not to move people around, but let them dwell where they were. Let them keep their language, keep their culture, keep their religion. Maybe it'll be stronger that way was the Persian idea. Now, why would God care about the Babylonians or the Persians? He cares about the Babylonians because they were the ones that exiled Israel. Why the Persians? Well, this is very particular for prophecy here. Through the prophet Isaiah who was writing before the exile, by the way, before even the Babylonians had captured everybody. Isaiah writes and says that Israel will fall, the temple will be destroyed, but then there will come a man. Isaiah names him. This is Isaiah chapter 44. And you can flip over there if you want, right? Uh, I'm sorry, I left a handful of uh, few books. Yeah, go back before Ezekiel, before Jeremiah, you'll get to Isaiah. Isaiah 44. Look at verse 24. Thus says Yahweh, Isaiah 44, 24, your Redeemer. Notice this, even that redemption language in here that God is referring to himself as the one who redeems, that's purchasing Israel with his own death. Speaks as a messianic prophecy. Earlier in Isaiah 4, verse 6, I am the first, I am the last. There is no God like me. In the middle part of Isaiah 44, it rebukes Israel for their idolatry. Isaiah 44, 21, remember these things, O Jacob. I formed you. I, I won't forget you in verse 21. I will blot out your transgressions in verse 22. This is all about redemption. Verse 24, thus says Yahweh, your redeemer, because he's, your sins have been forgiven back in verse 21, who formed you out of the womb. I am Yahweh who made all things, who alone stretch out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Notice this exhaustive claim of sovereignty. In contrast to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar right now is sovereign over his animals, but Yahweh says, I'm the one who made him. <laughs> So, so you do you, king, but I made the world that you reign on. Verse 25, Yahweh frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, those so-called wise men who can interpret dreams. This is so prophetic about Daniel's life, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish. God knows the future, and so he exploits the wise men by showing them that they don't know anything. 
Yet he confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited and says of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry. I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he's my shepherd. He shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says Yahweh to his anointed, Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him. Their gates may not be closed. I'll go before you. I'll level the exalted places. I'll break in pieces the doors of bronze. This becomes the prophecy of Cyrus, who will be the Persian leader, that God names him and says, I'm sending him. And he will reign. He will rebuild Jerusalem. He does this decades before the guy's born. God knows his name. Again, you see the overarching sovereignty here, that God will cause the Babylonians to fall, the Persians to be exalted, because God chooses the ruler who will return Israel to their land. Critical player in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Again, Daniel's written so far before that. Isaiah, even before that. God knows the names of the king's he will lose. And now Nebuchadnezzar does too. But Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold, second nation, the Persians, third, the Greek empire. They're described back in Daniel. Two is the empire of bronze, verse 39, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. Speaking of the Mediterranean basin, remember this is the called all the earth here because this is where Africa and the, the Middle East, Asia and Europe all combine along this basin. This third empire, it's the 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 loins of bronze. This is the Greek empire, the empire of Greece. The armies of Alexander the Great conquer Persia in 332 BC. 332 years before Jesus' birth, the Greek empire conquered the Persians. And their empire will last last 185 years. Bronze is obviously less glorious than silver, than gold. That's why, you know, pennies are... Well, at some point they were bronze. I don't even know what they are now. Sand or something. Bronze is less glorious. But bronze, strangely enough, is stronger than silver, which is why pennies are made out of them, I think, or used to be made out of them. It's stronger than silver. It'll last longer. It'll have a little more of a legacy. Notice that God is in even the details here of the Greek empire. We won't spend much time with the Greek empire tonight. We'll see them again in Daniel chapter 8. Know that in Daniel chapter 8, they're compared to a goat. I don't know what to make of that, but by Daniel 8, we'll have it figured out. And that leads to the fourth empire here, Rome. The Roman Empire, made of iron and clay, clearly presented in two stages. You see this again in verse, this, uh, verse 40. There shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And the iron it crushes, like the iron it crushes, it shall break and it shall crush. You go back up, to the first part of this introduction, verse 35, the iron, the clay, the bronze. Verse 34, you looked as a stone, uh, I'm sorry, verse 33, it had legs of iron, his feet were partly of iron and partly of clay. So the Roman Empire here is described as iron legs, but then mixed with clay. I think it's likely this becomes a prophecy of even democracy here, that the authoritative rule of Caesar will be mixed and diluted with the, the clay feet of man, the, the whims of mankind. I don't know that definitively, but that is what many commentators put forward and it seems to make sense. That the longevity of the Roman Empire, which lasted longer than all these other empires, is owing to its implementation of democracy, but democracy dilutes its strength. It reduces power and dilutes strength, but gives longevity, gives a, a mechanism for revolt and for change. And I think that's all in the, built up here in the prophecy. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar would have no idea about democracy. <laughs> You don't vote on Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king of kings. He's the one who throws people in the furnace, remember? And you remember what Nebuchadnezzar's practical takeaway of this whole statue prophecy is? He's going to build his own statue. <laughs> that's, that, that's what he learned from this. So democracy is not in his vocabulary. But it's coming. Centuries later, it's coming. Strength mixed with clay. It stands together. But clay, of course, is fickle. It's fragile. If it hardens, it breaks. 
If it's soft, it doesn't support. That's the nature of the Roman Empire. Now, the Roman Empire, historians uh, call it the, the Iron Empire. They even, the Roman Empire had legions that are called the Iron Legions of Rome. And they're the ones that solidified the control of this basin. By solidifying it, they gave the, unlike the Babylonians, unlike the Persians, unlike the Greeks, the Roman Empire gave this whole part of the world a common language. Everybody spoke Greek because of the Roman Empire, which was not the doing of the Greek Empire, which makes it confusing, but it wasn't. Rome solidified transportation, put in roads, put in common laws all over the empire, put in common currencies all over the empire. It brought a uniform culture. It allowed freedom of movement, freedom of travel. In a sense, it had the best of everybody else. If you peacefully went and surrendered to the Roman Empire, you were allowed to stay in your land. They didn't exile you like the Babylonians. They didn't have a hands-off approach like the Persians. They didn't have no approach like the Greeks. I mean, the Greeks just conquered and moved on. The Romans conquered, let you stay there with their own representatives, their own government there, mixed with your government to bring everybody into the same world. This is what Paul means in Galatians 4, verse 4, when he describes this as the fullness of time. There was particular prophetic implications to having the Greek, I mean, the Roman Empire rule the world like this. This allowed for the Savior to be born. If the Savior was born in Babylon, the world wouldn't know. If the Savior was born in Persia, the world would not have the ability to hear the good news. The message could travel, but it would be in a foreign language. Difficult to send a missionary from Jerusalem to India in the Persian Empire, or even to Persia for that matter. I mean, just think of all the skepticism that everybody was treated with in the book of, of Ezra and Nehemiah. Just skepticism after skepticism. They didn't want the, the Ezra to rule over the people. They didn't, the emperor of Persia didn't want Nehemiah to go back. The Roman Empire had none of those obstacles. So the gospel could move freely. The gospel was opposed by the, by the Jews from Jerusalem. And so it, it break, breaks through the banks. It gets into the Roman world. It takes off in Corinth. It takes off in Galatia. It takes off in Ephesus. And it gets established. And missionaries go from there all the way to India, all the way to England, all the way to Ethiopia because of the Roman rule. This isn't incidental to the point. This is the point that God is orchestrating the empires of the world to usher in the Savior and to construct it in such a way the good news of Jesus Christ can get to the nations. Nebuchadnezzar has no idea what's in this prophecy. But notice that there's also a future for Rome, a future that's going to come after the Savior comes. The Savior is going to come, of course. The rock is going to be uh, born the rock will be the savior. We'll look at that later. But notice that the, the rock comes. And verse 35, back earlier, the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, altogether were broken into pieces by the rock, became like the shaft of the summer threshing floor and blew away. Not a trace of them could be found. The stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is at the end of times now because that, this has not happened yet. There's still remnants of those empires that are still here. And you get this, this split in the time. When you look back down, verse 41 is different than the, the feet of iron and clay mixed together. Verse 41 is different because you see the feet of iron and clay, but then you see the feet in the toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom. And some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And now let's call out the toe. I think that's talking about the past Roman Empire. But now look at this. As the toes of the feet were partially iron and partially clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with the clay, they will mix with one another in marriage. Well, that's interesting. They will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in all the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Now we get more about these toes elsewhere. And I want you to hear about the toes because I think it's interesting, at least. Daniel 7 describes a different vision. Daniel 7, verse 7, in the night visions, I saw, behold, a fourth beast terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, speaking of the Roman Empire. 
It had great iron teeth. Notice in the Nebuchadnezzar's vision, the iron is in the, the legs. But here in Daniel 7, the vision has the teeth of iron. And it devoured and broke into pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. Notice the feet again of this beast. Then these 10 toes, it was different from all of the beasts. This is Daniel 7 verse 7. Different from all the beasts that were before it and it had 10 horns. And so while you're looking at your verse, I changed the screen to give you another point in your outline here. There are 10, a 10 nation alliance that is ruled by the Antichrist. This is part of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Nebuchadnezzar just sees the toes differently than the legs. Daniel 7 is going to give more footing to that. I think it is. And it'll show you that the feet and the toes become different by centuries, by millennia. These toes are different than all of the beasts that came before. So the toes are separated from the, the legs of iron. This is Daniel 7, verse 7. And it has 10 horns. I considered the horns. And behold, there came up among them another horn, a little horn, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. This is a fight between the horns now, a fight between the toes. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man and a mouth speaking great things. Now, this is the imagery that gets picked up in Revelation 13. You can flip all the way over there, but I'll read it if you don't want to flip. Revelation 13, verse 1. I saw a beast riding, this is John saying his vision, rising out of the sea with 10 horns, with seven heads, with 10 diadems on its horn and blasphemous names on its head. The beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. This is back to kind of Daniel 7's vision. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. It was a dragon. It had power and a throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. So in the middle of these 10 nations, these 10 teeth or these 10 toes, whatever you describe them as, is one leader or a new horn that wages war on them. That horn is afflicted with a mortal wound. It rises again. Remember from our study in Revelation, I don't know if the Antichrist actually does die and resurrect or if it's fake. There's language in it in Revelation 13 that makes it seem like it's, it's faked. It makes it seem not legitimate, like it's a trick, an optical illusion, but it happens somehow, and the whole earth marvels at him. They worship the dragon, so the second horn here is being worshipped along with the first horn. For he'd given authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? So this description here of these toes rising up, these teeth rising up, these horns rising up, they're described differently in different parts of the Bible, but they're this 10-nation alliance that is led by one particular individual known in Revelation as the Antichrist, who brings them together. This is why people see the future Antichrist kingdom as a revived Roman Empire because of Daniel chapter 2. And you think Daniel chapter 2 doesn't say anything about the Antichrist. Yes, but Daniel chapter 2 gives you here the groundwork to see these 10 nations that come from Rome, that come from the legs of iron, doing something else in the future. They're mixed now in Daniel's prophecy. They're mixed, but they will return. And they will be what is ultimately crushed by the Savior. And that's so important to understand because when you're done with the book of Daniel, you have this prophecy that Jesus will destroy the Roman Empire. Imagine the disciples' bewilderment when Jesus comes and does not destroy the Roman Empire. You think, did he not read Daniel 2? Doesn't he know what happens to the Roman Empire? Because it goes down in Daniel 2. We just saw it. It's blown away. And Jesus says, not yet, not yet. It is still coming in the future. The Roman Empire will be devastated in the future, not yet. And Revelation fills that in the future. Revelation lets you know exactly what will happen in the future. God didn't forget about his prophecy. The prophecy will happen. The Antichrist Empire will be destroyed by the Savior at his return. Described in Revelation 12 as the dragon being thrown to earth. Jesus' shattering of the Gentiles' power will establish the rule of Daniel's God forever. That's the scope of this prophecy. I want you not to lose sight of the most important part of this prophecy. Verse 44 of Daniel 2. In those days of the kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. What's those days? 
the days of the Antichrist rebellion, the days of that 10 nation alliance. So remember the Roman Empire has already been destroyed once, but it's gonna come up again. It'll resurrect again with the toes, the horns and all that. And it would resurrect again in those days. So it's still future from us right now. I mean, that's the crazy thing about this prophecy is you're in it right now. You're in this, you're, you're, there's part of it that's still going on in the future. And you have, before you read the rest of this, you have to ask yourself, did the first empires come and go exactly like Daniel prophesied? And the answer is yes. Will this next one come the same way? And the answer has to be yes. What's going to happen to the Antichrist kingdom? Described differently all over the Bible between just being defeated in war to being cast down from heaven to being slain. But look at the way Daniel describes it. In those days, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. What a contrast to Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, which will end soon. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is going to be taken over by the Persians. Persians' kingdom taken over by the Greeks. The Greeks' kingdom taken over by the Romans. The Antichrist kingdom taken over by Christ and his kingdom, Daniel says, will never be given to anybody else. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. I mentioned this last week, it bears repeating this week. If you find yourself swept up in the news of the day, the politics of the day, the whatever the latest causes, Daniel 2 just brings you back to earth, doesn't it? The kings come and kings go, but you know what? Jesus' kingdom will stand. It will stand forever. How's this going to happen? Verse 45, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hands, it'll break into pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. All those other kingdoms will be destroyed by the stone. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain. Its interpretation is sure. You better believe it. This stone is called the Rock of Ages. I like that turn of phrase because it is a rock. It's crafted without human hands, which is, I think is a testimony of the virgin birth. This rock is not brought into existence by somebody else. This rock does not inherit somebody else's kingdom like the statue does. It's entirely different. And it will shatter the Gentiles' power forever. In what ways is the Messiah referred to as a rock? Well, he's called a rock in two ways. I note this for you on your board. First, he's the rejected stone. That Jesus is the rock of ages because he is rejected. Notice the statue does not want the stone. The stone is bringing war against the statue. The empires of this world do not appreciate the Savior. He's rejected by them. Paul says it this way, Romans 9.33, he's rejected by the builders. Romans 9.33 calls Jesus a rock of offense, a stumbling stone. And we use that today. I mean, oh, don't make me stumble. It means you made me think about something I shouldn't think about or something. But think, if you're in a building situation and you reject a stone, you're building a wall and you throw it. I don't like this stone. It's crooked. I don't want to use it. You throw it over here. It's called a stumbling stone for a very obvious reason because the next worker walks by and he stumbles on it. <laughs> You threw the stone away and he tripped on it. Jesus is referred to as that stone. He was sent to the earth by God and the Jews rejected him. And in Romans 9.33, the Gentiles reject him. They don't want him. Nebuchadnezzar would reject him at this point in his life. Cyrus would send it away. Caesar would throw it away. And what happens when it's thrown away? Everybody trips on him. And Jesus takes that and turns it in Luke 20, verse 18. I think a funny verse. Everyone who trips on that stone will be broken into pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him, Jesus says. So you trip on the stumbling stone. Normally, you trip on the stone that was rejected. You might crush the stone. The worst that happens to you is you trip and you get up and you yell at the guy that threw it there. But not with Jesus. He's rejected. He's thrown away. You trip on him and you get crushed. I mean, that is mixing your metaphor here. <laughs> tripped on the stone. What happens if you trip on a stone and it rolls on top of you? That's what happens with Jesus. That's fitting because even Psalm 118 verse 22 describes the Savior as a stone that the builders rejected. But Psalm 18 verse 22 turns it and says he's a stone the builders rejected and he becomes what? The cornerstone. The builders threw it away and God is going to build his kingdom off of it. 
Isaiah 28, verse 16, therefore thus says the Lord Yahweh, behold, I am the one who laid a foundation in Zion. I laid a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone. I laid him as a sure foundation. And whoever believes in my foundation will never be put to shame. Zechariah 3, verse 9, behold, on this stone that I have set before Joshua, on that single stone, I will give it seven eyes, meaning this cornerstone will see all things. I will engrave on it its inscription, declares Yahweh, and I will remove the sin of this land in one day. And that's the cornerstone. And ultimately, this cornerstone is victorious. Daniel 7, verse 9, I looked, and the thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. His hair was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire came out from before the throne. A thousand and a thousand served him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and he opened the book of life. That God as the cornerstone will judge the souls of men. That lets you know, Daniel 7 verse 9, that he's going to open the books of salvation and the book of works of condemnation. I mean, who opens that book? In Revelation 5, no one can open that book except the Lord. This stone is God himself. God makes an entrance into this vision. And that's the problem right there. With all of this talk about the nations coming and going, let's not lose sight of the fact that God has meticulous sovereignty over individuals. And here's one big individual to deal with. Verse 46, King Nebuchadnezzar. What's he going to do with this? Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face, paid homage to Daniel, and commanded an offering and incense be offered to him. So not quite putting worship in the right spot, but it's a step in the right direction. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord, and Lord of kings. Notice Nebuchadnezzar is now transferring the praise he received from Daniel back to God. He's a revealer of mysteries, for you've been able to reveal this mystery. The king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king. Babylon's supposed to be ruled by the wise men that have gone through the training and then the eunuchs. But Daniel makes a request. It says, give me Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. He uses now their, their Babylonian names. I think it was a wise move from him to win over Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel remained in the king's court. Daniel was supposed to rule Babylon. And just like you might have the, you know, the D.C. City Hall is different than the Capitol building. Daniel's in the Capitol building. And the king says, I'm going to reward you by giving you D.C. City Hall. And Daniel says, can I give it to my friends and stay here with you? And that's how they get separated, which is going to come into play in chapter 3. The main takeaway from this vision that God knows perfectly the future. 1740, Augustus Toplady was born. His father was in the army, the British army, was away from home most of Augustus's life. Augustus's mother was a devouted, devout Methodist and wanted her son to be a pastor, not a soldier. Paid for him to go to seminary. Before he did, he went, a wealthy family, went on a vacation to Dublin when he was in Dublin, he went to a Methodist revival in a barn. For the first time, even though he's raised in a Christian family, the gospel pierces Augustus's heart. He writes later about his conversion in that barn outside of Dublin. Remember, English people this time don't have a high view of Dublin. Apologies to any Irish here. Augustus writes, quote, strange that I, who had so long sat under the means of grace in England, should be brought nigh unto God in an obscure part of Ireland, Dublin, amidst a handful of God's people met together in a barn and under the ministry of someone so illiterate he could probably not spell his name. <laughs> Surely this is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous. Educated man saved in the barn with some illiterate Methodist preacher. He returned home. He fell into the wrong crowd, you could say. He fell into a bunch of Calvinists. His pastor for the rest of his relatively short life, he died at 38, was the, the famous Puritan, Dr. Thomas Manton. Wrote so many books upon faith and, and the phrase, the true and better Adam comes from Manton. This is the preaching that Augustus Toplady sat under. He decided to devote his life to fixing the worship problem in the churches then. The churches did not have... Good singing. Some churches only sang the Psalms, of course. This is around the time of Isaac Watts. He spent his life, he wrote hundreds and hundreds of hymns. He published a dozen hymnals. 
When he was 35 years old, Thomas Mann kicked him out of church and said, you got to go pastor your own church. Stop writing hymns. Go preach. He went and preached for three years and then died at age 38 of a very severe illness. By the way, when the doctor came to him and said, your pulse is slowing, you're going to die, he said, that's the best news I've ever heard. His most famous song, Rock of Ages, taken from the image in Daniel chapter 2, that God raises up a rock that will crush the so-called empires of this world. What you might not know is that he wrote an introduction to this hymn. Let me read it for you. Yet if you fall, be humbled. Never despair. Speaking of falling into sin, pray afresh to God who is able to raise you up and who will set you on your feet again. Look to the blood of the covenant and say to the Lord from the depth of your heart, you are the rock of ages cleft from me. Let me hide myself in thee. Father, we're grateful that you are the sovereign of the world. You are the true king of kings, the true Lord of lords. And you have sent the rock of ages as our savior. His kingdom will come in the future. He will dash apart the kingdoms of this world. He will crush the Antichrist and his alliance of the revived Roman Empire and he will reign from Jerusalem over the world with a kingdom that has no end. But Lord, we know not just the grand scope of future is important, but your relationship to us in our hearts is significant right here and right now. So Lord, we want to confess that we trust you We hide ourselves in you. We believe that you are in charge of the future because of how well you have described it in the past. And because of this prophecy that has come to pass exactly like you said it was, we have grounds upon which to believe in the Savior, Jesus Christ. He was the rock made without human hands, born to a virgin, resurrected from the grave. Some might scoff at such a miracle and call it unworthy of this world, but we see in that foolishness the very wisdom of God. And we believe it. We rejoice in the fact that the rock is our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.